Good morning. My name is Michael Mayo. As Father James alluded to, I am a pastoral resident or a curate, if you want to use Anglican speak here. And uh, you might have noticed that Father Alex is not here this weekend. Uh, you might have heard that he was elected bishop of our, our diocese, so he's the bishop-elect. Before he can become the actual bishop, he has to be confirmed by the College of Bishops, all the other bishops. So this week he's up in Virginia and is going to be grilled and vetted by them to make sure that he's legit and checks out. So that's where he is this morning. He's preparing to go up there. And in our staff meeting this week, Father James said something that I thought was really sweet. He was talking about how much my being here at Servants has meant to him. Chiefly that for two years in a row now, he has not had to preach on Trinity Sunday. <laughs> so that's, uh, it just warmed my heart to hear that. Um, and we, we joke about preaching on Trinity Sunday because the Trinity is admittedly a complex thing. You don't have to have a seminary education to know that it is kind of confusing that God is three in one and one in three, but it doesn't violate the transitive property because he's three persons in one God. So like the units aren't the same, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still confusing. But that being said, this matters a lot because this is really the main thing that distinguishes Christianity from any other religion out there. No other religion will say that God is triune, will say that God is three and one and one and three. We have religions that say that God is one. For instance, Islam, we have religions that will say there are many gods or everything is God, but Christianity is the only one going that says God is three in one, and one in three in a way that kind of makes our brains hurt. Uh, and in some ways for me, I find that encouraging because it's the kind of thing that I don't think someone would make up if you're trying to make up a religion to convince lots of people that this is what's true about the universe. You might not make up something that makes no sense to our human minds, um, and that's exactly what we see in the Trinity. And so last year when I preached, I suggested that the Trinity is not a maxim to be explained. It's not something that we're supposed to put under a microscope so that we can grasp every part of it. Instead, it's a mystery to be experienced. It's something that we, as we live our lives in Christ, as we follow God, as we grow in knowledge and love of God, we experience it in our life with God. And that is best how we learn about the Trinity is in our experience of how God is with us and how God loves us. And so I'm going to attempt, we'll see if it works now, I'm going to attempt to double down on that by in the passages we have this year to show how the, the, in our experience of God, the Trinity communicates to us, helps us experience the holiness of God as king of the universe. So in the Anglican tradition, we always have four passages each week, and ideally there's supposed to be a thread that kind of connects them together. There's supposed to be some connective tissue that ties everything together. So I'm going to ask us to play a game here, and it might be hard because you're going to have to remember something that happened like five minutes ago which is challenging. But if you were to think back on the four passages, 
if we were to play a game of which one of these is not like the other, which one would you choose? I heard someone say the gospel. That's a relief to me because that's what I thought the obvious thing was. Uh, I'm sure there are other ways of looking at it, but yeah, to me it's the gospel. In the first three passages in Isaiah, we have this majestic picture of God enthroned as king. We see this awesome picture of God in the first three readings. And then in the fourth one, we, we see something that seems much more mundane. Jesus is having an after-dinner conversation with his disciples. There's no glimpse of the heavenlies or anything majestic like that. And I think there is a connection there, but to get there, I think we're going to have to start with the more epic passages. So each of these passages, though they have a similar kind of content, they have very different contexts. So in Isaiah 6, this happens when Isaiah is worshiping God in, in, in the temple. The, the psalm, the context of this psalm is the psalm is praising God as the Lord over all. And in the Revelation passage, John is writing this in exile when the Spirit gives him a glimpse into the heavenly throne room. So all these passages are written in very different contexts. Yet despite that, they paint a very similar picture of God. They each show God sitting on a throne in the presence of angelic beings who are worshiping him. Isaiah says he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and above him stood the seraphim, which is like uh, an angelic being that has six wings, and it's, the word for seraphim means fiery. So it's this angelic being that's crying, holy, holy, holy. So we have God on a throne being worshipped by a heavenly being. In Psalm 29, we see a similar thing. It says that God is king. In the ESV, it says that he's enthroned. And then it begins with uh, the, the psalmist asking the heavenly beings to praise God. So we see God enthroned being praised by heavenly creatures. And Re Revelation depicts the, th depicts the throne in heaven surrounded by four crazy-looking creatures all crying, holy, holy, holy. So we have all of that in common, but there's more that they have in common as well. Th these passages also all show the awesome power of the voice of the Lord and human beings being overwhelmed in response. So Isaiah describes the thresholds of the temple shaking in response to the voice of God. And as he sees this, he despairs because he is in the presence of one so great, and yet he is sinful. In Psalm 29, we see the voice of the Lord as a thunderstorm that shakes the earth and strips the trees. And as a result, his people cry, glory, and Revelation describes thunder and lightning emanating from the throne of God. And the people, the 24 elders, cannot help but prostrate themselves and give honor to God in response to what they see and hear. So these similarities create a common message that God is a holy king over all. And not just a holy king, but a holy, holy, holy king. Uh, in English, we make words a superlative by adding the EST ending, 
But in Hebrew, sometimes to indicate that things are superlative, they'll say the same word twice. But here in the Isaiah passage, it repeats the same word three times. So it's not like saying God is the holiest or the most holy. It's saying God is the mostest holy. And this is the only time that we see a word repeated three times in reference to God in the whole Bible, saying God is holy, holy, holy. He's the mostest of holy. And holy is a word that we can say a lot in church such that we uh, forget what it means. I learned this past week the phrase for that thing where you say a word so many times that it becomes meaningless and it just starts to sound like sounds. And I forgot what that phrase is. It's, it's something saturation. But um, it's easy for us to think like that's what happens with the word holy in church. And you might have heard before that it essentially means God is set apart. Or the holy means that something is set, uh, that, that something is set apart. So when it's saying that God is holy, 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 he's utterly set apart beyond all things. Now if we cannot fathom something, we might say like, man, I don't have a category for that. It's just so unbelievable. And so when we think about God as being holy, 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 we can think about it as being God is so unlike anything else, there's not a single category he fits in. Our minds, to make sense of things, we put similar things in categories, just like we did with those three passages. But there's no category that can contain God because nothing is like him. He's a category all unto himself. And so in these three passages, we see that God is a holy king unlike anything else that rules all of the universe. And in all three of these contexts, that was a much needed message. The Isaiah passage starts out when he talks about how he got this vision the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah reigned for 52 years. His reign was marked by uh, military victories and lots of construction as well, the hallmarks of a successful king back then. But it also happened in the time of kind of a period of national decadence where God cursed Uzziah because he kind of thought that he could take on a spiritual role as well. And so Uzziah was condemned to be separated from the worshiping community with leprosy for the rest of his life. And so this is happening when this great king has died. We don't know what's coming next. And worse yet, the first five chapters of Isaiah are all essentially talking about storm clouds on the horizon for the people of, of, of Judah. And so we see storm clouds on the horizon, we see the king has died, and what is the message that Isaiah receives? That God is the holy king still, that rulers on this earth live and die, but there is no one like God and he will reign forever. In the similar way, Psalms uses the imagery of a th thunderstorm to describe how God is the holy ruler over all the cosmos. And lots of scholars think that the, the thunderstorm thing was not just a coincidence, that Baal, the god of some of the neighboring nations, was thought of to be the lord of the storm. And so when the psalmist is writing this psalm, he's very intentionally saying, God is the king of the cosmos, not Baal, not anything else, not, anything, uh, not any other things that people might worship. God is king. And lastly, the context that John writes in, he's in 
exile, when the church is being persecuted by Caesar. Perhaps God has forgotten about them, but he's reminded that God still sits on his throne and God is in control no matter what Caesar does. That in all three of these passages, their context is one that welcomes this idea that God is a holy king. In the midst of the other things in this world that vibe with the affections of our hearts, in the midst of temptations that will have us believe that God has let things get out of hand, we too can look to these passages and be reminded that God is our holy king. But what do these passages have to do with the gospel passage? And what do these passages have to do with the Trinity? The gospel passage does not have a throne or angelic beings or anything that seems grandiose. Jesus is giving a farewell address of sorts to his closest disciples who's been with him for three years of his ministry. And in this address, in this conversation he's having with them, he started out by commanding them to love one another and talking about the Holy Spirit who would help them to love like that. But then he moved on to talk about how the world would hate them and persecute them after he left. And Jesus knew that the disciples could not bear him talking about his crucifixion and death, which in some ways would be emblematic of the persecution that they would face. That as it goes with the leader, so it goes with the followers. And so in John it said, because they couldn't bear to hear more, he says this, So instead, he tells them that the Holy Spirit would guide them in all truth. And here's where we start to see some similarities with some of the other passages. We see hints of the glory of God. Jesus says that the Spirit will glorify him. And we see the voice of God as the Spirit declares things to the disciples and to us. But this glory seems subdued compared to the other passages that we read. And this voice of God does not seem earth-shaking. But the truth and things to come here don't refer to all knowable facts that exist or to everything that will happen to come in the future. It likely most specifically refers chiefly to Christ's death and his resurrection and how in the future he would be enthroned as king of the universe. And that his spirit would guide the disciples and open their minds to understand who Jesus was. Like you, you see hints of this at some parts of the Gospel of John. For instance, when Jesus cleanses the temple, it says, essentially, they, didn't, they realized afterwards what Jesus meant when he said those things. That's an example of how the spirit guided them in the truth to reveal to them who Jesus actually was. And so the Spirit would guide the the disciples to open their minds to who Jesus was. And this is the glory of Christ, that the same God who we see so high and lifted up in those other passages is the same God who would stoop so low and give his very self. The Spirit takes the glory of Christ and declares it to us. The Spirit takes the Son's message that through him we are adopted daughters and sons and he speaks it to our hearts. And here we see a commonality with the other passages in the voice of God. 
But the Spirit's voice here is not accompanied by the earth quaking. There's no shattering of the earth when the Spirit speaks these things into our hearts. But it does point to a time when Jesus did take a throne, which was his cross. And at his death, the whole earth did shake. And so in the Spirit, we see how through Christ, the Father draws all people to himself. And that is the glory of God, that one so high and lofty would be the same one who would stoop so low to redeem his people so that they can dwell with him. And this is a reminder that we need in our different contexts. In Isaiah 6, it says when he's looking at how amazing God is, he feels ruined because who is he to stand before the presence of this God? But the angel takes a coal from the altar. It takes a coal from the place where atonement is made It points to the work of Christ and it puts it on his lips. The lips were the place where he felt most ruined and most guilty. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And yet here, that's exactly where he receives the comfort that his guilt has been atoned for. And that because of God's grace and mercy, he can stand before God. We need this reminder in our context as well that we don't have uh, Uzziah or Caesar as Lord, but it's very easy, whatever your political persuasion is, to look around at the world and think, man, things aren't going right. It's tough out there. And we can be reminded that despite that God is on his throne, the Spirit reminds us that in Christ we see a merciful, gracious king who even when it seems things aren't going his way, even when he's being carried, even when he's walking to the cross to die, he's still in control over all things and working them together for good in ways that we cannot understand. So just like the original audience of this epic Old Testament passages, we need this message as well, that how in the Spirit, God shows us that through Christ, the Father is reigning over all things and draws us to him as his forgiven and redeemed people. And as we start to grasp that in the depths of our hearts, the earth might not shake, but it will definitely shake our heart and help us to see ourselves and the world around us in God anew. So please pray with me. God, we we thank you that that you are God, that you are the true king, and that there is no one like you. You are not just the invention of, uh, of some man or woman's mind, but you are the true God who reigns over all. And God, we come to you from different places in our lives, but we all need to be reminded by your spirit how through your son you reign over all things. So impress upon our hearts this morning the good news of your gospel and the good news that you are triune. Uh, Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.